Welcome to the vodcast. The use of non-traditional personal pronouns coming out of the LGBTQ community has gotten a lot of attention the last few years. But what happens when this trend works its way into the schools your children attend? Let's take a look at that. The Dr. Reality Vodcast with Dave Champion. Let's begin with this. I haven't objected to the pronoun issue in the same way many people have. Being libertarian-minded, I don't really care what people do as long as it isn't diminishing my liberty. And as long as my liberty isn't being infringed, I don't have much of an objection to accommodating the wishes of others. If a person born a female wants to dress up as a guy and prefers to be called he or him, okay, that's not a big deal to me. Likewise, if a person born a male dresses up like a woman and prefers the pronoun she or her, same thing. It doesn't bother me to accommodate that person. We've all got our bullshit, and I'm not going to judge them because their bullshit is different than my bullshit. That said, a critical aspect is I'm choosing to accommodate their preference. The first time I started to get a bad feeling about the use of non-traditional personal pronouns was when some universities began punishing students for declining to accommodate a person's pronoun preference. That's a complete 180 from freely choosing to accommodate a person's preference or choosing not to. I've been saying for some time that American society appears to be losing its earlier reverence for free speech. Universities punishing students for not accommodating someone's pronoun preference is a perfect example of violating free speech. How does that violate free speech, you might ask? It violates free speech because implicit in the right of free speech are two aspects less well recognized than merely saying what's on your mind. One is the right to not be compelled to speak. In other words, choosing not to speak is a part of the right of free speech. The other less well-known aspect is not being compelled to say what someone else wants you to say. In other words, if you choose to speak, your right of free speech protects you from others putting words in your mouth by threatening to punish you for non-compliance with their demands of what words must come out of your mouth. In short, universities don't have the authority to silence the student's speech nor dictate what words come out of the student's mouth if the student chooses to speak. But what of those who say the First Amendment only prohibits government interference with free speech? Technically, they're correct. But there's a difference between the Constitution prohibiting government from censoring speech and the broader subject of free speech generally, which Americans are supposed to value, if not revere. That brings me to what I believe is a free speech issue far more relevant in 2023 than discussing a constitutional provision. The Founding Fathers Era Town Square no longer exists. It's gone. And it's never coming back. If we accede to the idea that private entities can ban speech, there is no free speech left in America, except perhaps on some random public sidewalk, if you don't get arrested. In other words, if there is no modern town square and private entities are free to suppress whatever speech they desire, where are Americans left to exercise free speech? Only in your own living room? What good is the right of free speech if we allow a construct to take hold in America in which there is no place we are permitted to exercise the right? 
Imagine having the right to own a firearm, but only on the condition that it is stored with a private entity that has the power to decide whether or not you can touch it or shoot it. No one would consider that a true right to own firearms. We would consider that a mockery of the right to keep and bear arms. Yet we have allowed ourselves to get in that position concerning the right of free speech. If there is no place to exercise the right of free speech without someone else's permission, then the right of free speech is a joke. It doesn't mean anything. But back to personal pronouns. The assault on free speech by certain universities notwithstanding, everyone who attends a university is an adult functioning from their own free will, or at least they should be, so I don't see the pronoun issue being any different in universities than I do in society generally. But recently, school districts have started writing policies for the use of non-traditional personal pronouns. Worse yet, some school districts are not involving the student's parents when the issue of non-traditional personal pronouns arises. In other words, if that subject becomes an issue with a student, school staff may never involve that student's parents in a discussion concerning how best to address the subject. Imagine the level of arrogance it takes for an administrator to think it's acceptable to exclude a, par a student's parents from a discussion that has nothing to do with education and everything to do with a cultural matter concerning which some parents have very strong opinions. Having witnessed the arrogance that's often present in public school administrators, you can bet your ass the circumstances in which school staff will exclude parents from the discussion is when they suspect the parents won't approve of what the school is doing. In other words, the school's way of addressing a situation in which they believe the parents would object to the school's action is to hide that action from the parents by intentionally excluding them. Some school districts are attempting to justify keeping parents in the dark by claiming it's for everyone's safety. Let's move from the cultural aspect to the education impact of these policies. Schools that are enacting these policies are permitting the use of the following pronouns. E, M, air, spelled E, E, M, and E, I, R. Z, her, hers, spelled Z, E, H, I, R, and H, I, R, S. And fe, fair, fares, spelled F-A-E, F-A-E-R, and F-A-E-R-S. I don't want to spend a lot of time on these, but let me help you understand what they are. I'll use E-M and air, pronounced E-M, air, as an example. E-M and air are simply the original words the, them, and their, with T-H removed from the front end. The problem I have with this is adults are knowingly, willfully, and intentionally allowing children to use these terms and pretend they're real words in the English language. I looked them up, and these terms are not found in online English dictionaries. Why? Because they aren't real words. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for children being creative, and some young kids have always made up words and used them when speaking with friends. What distinguishes these pseudo-pronouns from kids making up words in the past is school officials are sanctioning it, validating it in district policy, and encouraging the use of these terms in an educational setting. Also, some of the kids using these made-up pronouns are prepubescent. In my opinion, the vast majority of kids who want people to refer to them by these pseudo-pronouns are not invested in gender issues as much as they are being part of something trendy. Yet even if a child is actually focused on a gender issue, in my opinion, 
No school should advance that agenda without the parent's consent. Then we get into the potential problem of government compelling speech in places like elementary school, middle school, and high school. Once using these terms is official district policy, what happens when a member of the school staff or students decline to use those terms? Once a school has initiated what they're referring to as a gender support plan for a student, then staff and students who decline to use those terms will be seen as refusing to follow district policy. Following district policy is not optional for staff or students. Therefore, refusing to do as the policy dictates is subject to punishment. Can you imagine your kid getting detention or being suspended because he or she declines to call others by made-up words that are not in the dictionary? In what educational setting is it remotely acceptable to force a student to use pseudo-pronouns that are not words in the English dictionary and punish students who decline to do so? Again, I want to reiterate. I generally have no truck with these matters, but my perspective is based on the following points. One. It is my choice whether to accommodate a person's wishes or not, thus showing respect for my personal liberty. Two, never having the authorities attempt to force me to speak words I don't choose to speak. Three, the government is not involved in any way. Four, everyone involved is an adult. With the use of these pseudo-pronouns being written into school district policy, Every one of those factors disappears. Freedom of choice is gone. People in authority will be forcing staff and students to use pseudo-pronouns. Government is involved because school districts are their own government units, and the matter is no longer limited to adults. There's a now infamous quote by William Casey, former director of the CIA. Casey said this, quote, We'll know our disinformation campaign is complete, when everything the American public believes is false. Close quote. If one's paying attention, I think it's difficult not to see Casey's objective has been thoroughly achieved. The American public not only buys into all sorts of propaganda hook, line, and sinker, but those who drink the Kool-Aid will fight to the death to defend that propaganda. A perfect example is that most Americans believe the government's 60-year disinformation campaign to convince hardworking Americans they owe income tax when, in fact, the law says no such thing. As I mentioned a moment ago, they bought it hook, line, and sinker. Let's return to William Casey for a moment. Casey is widely credited as being the inventor of tax shelters, and he made millions putting wealthy clients into tax shelters. It makes perfect sense that he would want America to believe the lie that income tax applies to everyone, and he would create a massive disinformation campaign to promote the lie. Not only does it perfectly fit his CIA statement about disinformation, but it also allowed him to become a very rich man, convincing America's wealthy class they needed his tax shelters. Normally, at this point, I tell you about income tax shattering the myths and body science, but today I'm going to do something different. I'm going to limit my description to just one sentence for each book and then share what readers say about them. Okay, my one sentence about income tax shattering the myths is this. Income tax shattering the myths lays out the history and law concerning income tax and in doing so provides you with incontrovertible proof that the income tax does not apply to the ordinary working American like you. Before I share what readers have said about income tax shattering the myths, you need to know the quotes you're about to hear and see if you're watching on video 
are unsolicited comments from social media. I don't know the people whose comments you're about to hear. So, what do they say about income tax shattering the myth? Chase said, Some light reading on my flight. 100 pages in and I can't put it down. Thank you, Dave Champion, for your dedication to this movement. A quick word about Chase not being able to put it down. Given the subject, people might think income tax shattering the myth would be dry and boring. Just the opposite is true. Most readers have Chase's experience that it's a page-turner they cannot put down. Chad said, Well, I did it. Just finished income tax shattering the myth, and I have to say, I'm speechless. It was a little hard for me to read and comprehend, parenthesis, that's just me, close parenthesis, so I will read it again, and this time take notes. Corey, being humorous, said, Uh, I was just getting ready to list my signed copy of Shattering the Mist for $300. Just kidding. You'll have to pry this book from my cold, dead hands. To combine these sentiments would be to say Income Tax Shattering the Mist is a page-turner that can't be put down, leaves you speechless from what you learn, and is so valuable it would have to be pried from your cold, dead hands. Sounds like a book maybe you should read, does it not? I'm going to tell you how to do just that in a moment. Now, for my single sentence about body science. Body science destroys 60 years of propaganda by Big Med, Big Pharma, and Big Food. Shows you the truth about human physiology. The establishment does not want you to know because they want you sick. And then gives you a clear roadmap to being incredibly healthy and never getting chronic disease. So, what do readers say about body science? Mike said, Regarding your body science book, I lent another one to a friend. He sent me this text on Thursday, quote, I've read well over 200 books on diet slash nutrition slash exercise, etc. And nothing compares to what I just read. Thanks for letting me borrow it. Close quote. John said, hi, Dave. I just wanted to say bravo for your work on body science. I'm not someone you describe as a book reader, but I was riveted when I started reading it. And not opening a book in years, due mostly to my own attention span, I read over 40 pages in a sitting. I can't wait to read the rest. Thank you for making this information available. And Ivan said, I just got through the book. You hit it out of the park. Couldn't put it down till I finished it. It was like confirmation on so many questions I've had regarding many health issues, plaguing not just my family members, but this country as a whole. One's got to be a complete idiot not to be able to understand and grasp what you've presented. If we put those together... You get a book that outclasses 200 other books in the same category, resulted in a person who isn't much of a reader burning through 40 pages in a single sitting and being enthusiastic to keep going, and it answers so many questions about why America is the most chronically ill society in all of human history. Again, does it not sound like a book you should be reading? It's so easy to get your personal copy of Income Tax Shattering the Mist and or Body Science. Just go to drreality.news. That's drreality.news. Put them in the cart, check out. They'll be on their way to you within 24 hours. Also, I've been doing these fact-based presentations, which I think you'll agree are unique in their candor, for almost 20 years. When you purchase Income Tax Shattering the Mist and or Body Science, you help me to continue to be here for you with these thought-provoking presentations. Thanks for being here. Take care.